Hey everyone, this is Tim Harris. I'm the pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and this is our weekly podcast. Hope it encourages you. Hope it makes you want to be closer to Jesus and more like him. Hope you enjoy this sermon. And if you want to know more about us, find us online at woodburnbaptist.org. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 10. As you're turning, let me just mention one more thing to you. Next, next Sunday in, the, in this hour, 11 o'clock hour, we'll be having a luncheon in the fellowship hall for anyone interested in a new mentoring program, which we're beginning. We're calling it a young adult mentoring program, so it's young men, young women, either. Uh, but if you're interested in just having a mentor, someone who's just one or two seasons of life ahead of you, who would be willing to walk alongside you, listen, speak wisdom into you, uh, then this is for you. Next Sunday, 11 o'clock, Young Adult Mentoring Program. Now, as you know, you can't have mentees without mentors, so we need some mentors. We need those of you who are a little bit ahead in life, a couple of seasons ahead of others. If you would be willing to reach back and pull somebody along to be a mentor for one of these young adults, we want you at this luncheon too. The idea is that we pair you up. So if you're feeling called to be a mentor or if you're feeling that need to have someone to mentor you, this luncheon is for you next Sunday in this 11 o'clock hour in the fellowship hall. We'll feed you lunch and answer all your questions. And I think you'll be really, really blessed if you'll come. I hope you'll go next Sunday at 11. Uh, into the Word today, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. This is a message series entitled Powered by Prayer. It's a Mission One series, which means we're talking very specifically and targetedly about the mission of our church, what God is calling us to do, who He's calling us to be. And we usually frame that in terms of what we call Mission One. The Mission One statement begins with this sentence. I want to, I know you've heard it. I know in some ways you're tired of hearing it. If you're tired now, you're going to be really tired in about two years because we're still going to be talking about this. We're still going to be talking about this. Um, maybe one of the things you can start doing is when we say we are a body in your head, you can say I am. I am a believer characterized by supernatural unity, sacrificial love. I am a person of prayer dependent upon the Holy Spirit who guides and empowers me on mission. Do you understand the significance of that? Because it's never going to be we until it's you and me, you know, until we are beginning ourselves to live this out. I mean, we are the church. You can't talk about the church in, in general or in the abstract. We are the church. If this isn't happening in my life, in your life for real, then this is just words of, of you know, imaginary fiction. Uh, but this is what it says, and this is what I want you to think about today. I'm going to zero in on one word, but let's do it together. We're a body of believers characterized by supernatural unity and sacrificial love. We are, say it, People of prayer, that's what this series is about. We're people of prayer, dependent upon the Holy Spirit who guides and, say this word, empowers. He guides and empowers his church on mission. The Holy Spirit who guides and empowers his church on mission. So we're people of prayer, which connects us to the Holy Spirit who guides and empowers. It's this word, empowers, I really want us to think about today. What does it mean to be empowered, what, what does it mean to get power from the Spirit, and, and, and what is this power for? Well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right before Jesus, after the resurrection, before Jesus ascends back to heaven, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and what did he say? Acts 1, 8, uh, you shall receive power 
after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses to Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So uh, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit comes down and you shall be my witnesses. So understand, Jesus makes it very clear where our power comes from and what the power is for. So three statements right here to kick us off. The Holy Spirit brings power for mission. It's power to do the mission. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. That's the point. It's power for mission. It's not power to build big buildings. It's not power to have big groups. It's not power to do big things that bring attention to us. No, it's power for the mission, and the mission is about the gospel, to carry the gospel, to tell everybody about Jesus everywhere, everybody, everywhere, all the time. So the Holy Spirit brings power for mission. Number two, this power is released through prayer. Prayer is your personal connection to God, your personal relationship. It's the nurture of a relationship through the Holy Spirit. So this power is released through prayer, which means prayerlessness leads to powerlessness. Prayerlessness leads to powerlessness. So if in your personal spiritual life right now, you're feeling about a court low on power, I'm telling you, your powerlessness comes from your prayerlessness. There are entire seasons of our church's history, entire probably decades, when I would describe us as powerless. I'm not saying we weren't a good church. I'm not saying we didn't have good Sunday mornings. I'm not saying that we're not a good church, have a good Sunday mornings right now, but I am sort of saying that it doesn't take a whole lot of power, not supernatural power anyway, to have church. Jesus didn't die on the cross to send the Holy Spirit so we could just have church on Sunday, but too often we think that's all we're doing. You just got to drag your sorry behind to church at 11 o'clock and sit in a pew, hear the preacher speak a little too long, and then you get out and you think that that's the Christian life and you're painfully misinformed. It's mission. It's about mission. And honestly, the fact that our church in so many seasons is just powerless because we're prayerless and all of these things relate back to the fact that when we're on mission, we're praying and we have God's power flowing through us. But when we are off mission then we no longer pray because who needs to pray? We don't need power. It doesn't take power to do nothing special for God. And honestly, Sunday morning isn't necessarily something special. You can come in this house. We can turn on the lights. We can repaint the walls every 20 years. We can change the carpet every 30 years. I mean, we could just kind of have church and we could be happy doing it, but that would not mean that we're doing God's will. We need supernatural power because we're called to supernatural work. That is our mission, and our mission is about others. It's to tell others about Jesus. Now, what I want you to understand today is is, is this simple statement. To tell others about Jesus is to step into a spiritual fight. This is a war. This is a battle, and I'm not using that as an analogy so that you take me seriously. I'm telling you, there is a spiritual war, it's happening. And you step into that every single time you try to tell somebody about Jesus. I know that sounds simple to you, but hopefully by the time you walk through this word with me today, it won't seem so simple anymore. To tell others about Jesus is to step into a spiritual fight. That's why it's never easy, and it never will be. It's never easy. 
You ever tried to tell somebody about Jesus and the minute you start, you know, the baby cries, you know, your phone, you know, gives you notification. I mean, something happens. Something always happens. There's a distraction. Somebody walks up or all of a sudden you start, you just get confused. The devil starts whispering in your ear and all this. I mean, it's just the hardest thing you'll ever do. It's awkward. You go blank. You think you know what you want to say, and then the minute you start to say something, you can't think of any single, you can't think of any religious words at all. I mean, it is hard, and that's what I'm telling you. It's a fight. It's never easy. It's never going to be easy. It's a war, as a matter of fact, and this is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. It's a war, and nobody goes to war without the confidence that they have the, the momentum and the might to win. And this is what Paul talks about. Where, where do we get our momentum? Where do we get our might? Ephesians chapter 6. I've read this passage my whole life, but only recently have I really begun to read it more deeply and with more seriousness. I want to read it more deeply with seriousness with you today. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Let's do it. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers, authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you'll still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the, the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, Hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I'm in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador, so pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. Um, so it's a, it's a war. Um, It's hard to believe it was just last Saturday, but October 7th uh, is when the uh, Hamas terrorists launched their uh, multi-front uh, attack uh, against Israel. Uh, it's been a terrible week. Um, the numbers are devastating. Um, I think the most recent number I've seen is 1,200. Uh, it's a number of Israelis dead. 1,200 and something like 3,000 injured in hospital beds. 3,000 uh, with serious injuries. It's unthinkable. The other number that I focused on uh, is 150. 150 is a number of uh, many children, uh, mostly women and elderly that have been taken hostage. Hamas. Uh, it, it, it took a while to understand their strategy, but they infiltrated Israel to take hostages. 
And, and now those hostages are spread out through Gaza um, and being used as human shields. You, you put those Israeli grandmas around your armament as a deterrent from anybody you know, attacking your armament. You fill your headquarters with children, so anybody who wants to take out your headquarters will have to take out innocent children. It's a diabolical strategy. Um, among those hostages this week uh, were two uh, 60-year-old couple, uh, David and Rachel. They were from a little village, it's not little at all, it's a, it's a town called Okafine. It's about 20, 25 miles outside of Gaza. It was the site of a, a major standoff this week, if you follow the news. Um, David and Rachel were in their home when five um, armed men uh, broke in and uh, immediately threw them down on the ground to kill them. Their aim was to kill them. As I said, it's a couple in their 60s. Um, but now Rachel's a very strong woman, a very brave woman, and she began to just think what she could do to de-escalate, to save her own life, but to de-escalate, just try to bring the energy down and to somehow distract them. And so just before they would kill her, she asked them if they would like coffee, which is something, you know, that she would just do for guests in her home. She offered to make them coffee, uh, just trying to stay alive, trying to buy time and they all agreed that they would like coffee. And so Rachel got up and began to make them coffee again, just trying to buy time, just trying to live, you know, and find a way. And so once they had coffee, Rachel says, and this is what she says, uh, Rachel says that when men are hungry, they're angry. And so she wanted to feed them. And so she offered to make them a meal. And those five armed men agreed to let her make them chicken dinner. And so Rachel made them chicken dinner. Um, when you hear me telling this, don't think for a moment that this wasn't terrifying for her and for David, her husband. It's terrifying. So she made them chicken and did everything she could just to, to keep calm and to buy time. David and Rachel have a son. His name is Evie, and he's a police officer. And he quickly realized that the armed men were in the, in the neighborhood and then quickly realized that they were in his parents' house. And so Evie was going to rescue his parents. So Evie uh, did proper surveillance. He was all by himself. He, he, he came in the door and he put the gun against the head of one of the terrorists. And one of the other terrorists immediately grabbed Rachel, Evie's mom, and, and grabbed her around the throat and held a grenade like this. So he's got his mama and a grenade, and Evie has a gun against a man's head. And they stood there like that for the longest time. It's just a standoff. Finally, a SWAT team arrived, and Evie was able to step aside. The SWAT team came in. Uh, it was bloody. It was terrifying. Um, David, at one time, the old man, he threw his body across Rachel to protect her. They lived. They were set free. Two of the captives set free, which is amazing, but we still need to pray. I just, I, I bring that up because I know that's what a lot of us have been hearing about all week. Uh, and these true stories that just keep coming out are, um, are devastating to think about. But we think about it, and, and the whole world can understand and relate to this war because it's a flesh and blood war. 
You hear me? It's a flesh and blood war. And so because it's something that people can see, we're not there, but we can see the video on the internet. We can see our, our, our television screens. We see, and because we can see it, we understand the danger and the reality of it. And so we relate to a flesh and blood war. But, but now I'm speaking primarily today to believers, I assume, and as believers, I don't think I have to do a lot to help you understand that we know that there is a greater, much more ultimate war. And it's not a flesh and blood war. It's a spiritual war. When I say spiritual, I know that there are people who immediately think, okay, well, that's just preacher talk. That, that means it's not real. But no, no, you're so tragically mistaken if you think that I'm describing something that's not real. This may be a war that takes place in an unseen world, but unseen doesn't mean unreal. The spiritual realm is more real than this physical realm, but you and I can't see it. Our senses can't detect it. But there is a war. There is a war that has been going on since the beginning, and it is ongoing. And this is a war that involves every single man, woman, boy, and girl, every adult, every child that lives or has ever lived. Every one of us is taken up into this. I'm telling you, Everything is at stake. There is a war. And I'm not using this like as an analogy so that you understand the seriousness of the Christian life. No, I'm describing something that is literally true. There is a war. And Paul is trying to describe it for you here. Paul says, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, mighty powers in this dark world, evil spirits in the heavenly places. We are not fighting flesh and blood enemies. Now, flesh and blood wars are the only kinds that most people know. Flesh and blood enemies are the only ones that we actually take seriously. But Paul is saying you don't understand anything about how the world works if you really think the conflict is with flesh and blood enemies. There's a war right now between Israel and Hamas, but it's not the actual war. It's, it's, it's not, you can't find the root of that war in flesh and blood conflict. You understand that there is a greater war that, that stands above and behind everything else that happens in, in this world. Flesh and blood enemies are never our threat. That's not what you and I should be concerned with. It's the spiritual war. And this is what Paul is describing against, against evil rulers, authorities, principalities, powers. I mean, these are the kinds of words you find in verse 12. Mighty powers in this dark world, evil spirits in the heavenly places. I'm telling you, verse 12 is, is difficult to translate because Paul is using these very specific words for spiritual forces and ranks and strongholds, and it's hard for us to understand how all of that works, but it's not difficult to understand the basic principle where he's trying to tell us, you're at war. You are at war. Our church is at war. We're at war with a highly organized strategically deployed demonic battalion that never sleeps or quits. It's a spiritual war. You don't see these enemies. You don't see demonic battalions. But I'm telling you, they have you targeted. They see you. 
They're up against you. It is a fight. You don't understand it. Some of you still don't believe it, but I'm telling you, it's a highly organized, there's structure. I mean, the devil and his armies, it's not chaotic. It's, it's structured. It's organized. Paul describes principalities and powers in this series of rank. It's a demonic battalion that never sleeps or quits. You're a fool if you don't understand this. They never sleep or quit. So your question is probably, what are they after? What's this fight over? The spiritual war. I mean, what's it about? It's about souls. It's about souls. Now understand, the devil and all of his armies are defeated. Y'all know this. It's in every song we sing. Victory in Jesus, you know, my Savior forever, you know. I mean, he, he, he bought me with his redeeming blood. I mean, that's how Jesus won the victory. Is at the cross. I mean, the cross was the, the final blow against the devil's kingdom. I'm telling you, the war's over. Jesus wins. The devil has no hope of victory here. He doesn't even think he's going to win. He knows he's finished. There really never was a fight. The devil is not God's equal. The devil has nothing to go up against. I mean, surely you understand this. He never was a powerful foe. This never really was any kind of balanced, you know, strategic opposition. God could crush him like a bug, which is what he's done through Jesus. It's over. The victory's won through him. So what's happening now? Well, it's the cleanup. I mean, Scripture says that hell is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. So understand the devil and all these demonic battalions, they're all going one place, and that is to hell. And that's what hell was created for. It's created for them. Hell is created by God as a place to put the devil at the end of all things, and that's where he's going. But here's the thing. The devil cannot win. He cannot change how this ends for him, but he is determined to take as many souls with him as he can. He wants to take as many people to hell. Again, God never wanted people to go to hell. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. I'm telling you scripture. But a whole lot of people end up going there because the devil has involved us in this final war, in this battle. The devil is determined to take as many souls with him. He wants souls. Why souls? Because honestly, I mean, you and I, we live in this physical world, which, which is a distortion for us because we begin to think that physical things matter. I talked about this in the first sermon in this series when I said that our prayer life as a congregation is anemic because we focus only on physical things, physical needs of our physical bodies in the physical world. And, and we're supposed to be spiritual people. We know that everything you can see, including these bodies, it's all passing away. The only thing that you can see down here that you're going to see up there is souls, the souls of people is the only thing that's going to outlast the destruction of this world. Souls of people. So this war, this battle is over souls. And the devil wants to take as many with him as he can. As many as he can. And honestly, he, he, he's going to take quite a number. Joel Sutherland says it this way. Evangelism is spiritual warfare and souls are worth the fight. I just don't know if, I don't know that as a church we believe this. Souls are worth the fight. Understand, to step out 
with the gospel is to walk into a raging battle. It's already happening. It doesn't start when you step into it, but when you step into it, you begin to experience it. To step out with the gospel is to walk into a raging battle. You're invading the enemy's camp. You're setting captives free. You're just like Evie who walked into that house where his parents live trying to set his parents free. You understand this is a picture of evangelism. This is what you're doing. Setting captives free, storming the enemy's camp. I mean, this is what evangelism is, and this is the mission of our church. I'm not saying this is for those of you who really want to take the next level and, and be some sort of you know, super seal team for Christ. No, this is the ordinary Christian life. There's no version of the Christian life offered you in Scripture that it just allows you to sort of live a happy life, you and your family, where y'all just make money and, and take nice vacations, and then you hold your grandchildren and you die peacefully in the hospital. That's not the Christian life that Jesus died for. It's not the reason the Holy Spirit was sent, so you could have another good Sunday morning. No, no, this is the Christian life. It, it is to walk into a raging battle. It is to involve yourself in setting the captives free. It is to become a witness for Jesus, all of us. I, I'm, I'm not just saying this. It's all through Scripture, and let me just give you a taste of that. Uh, the blue uh, text here are, are my scriptural references. Write them down. Look them up. Search your Scriptures. Understand what I'm telling you is true. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 says this, unbelievers live as hostages to the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. The devil is the commander. There is some sort of structure, some sort of rank, and the devil is the commander of these dark forces. But understand, unbelievers live as hostages. It's not, that he may get them, he wants to take them hostage. No, this is the point. They already are his hostage. I mean, do you understand the truth of this? You understand we're talking about your neighbors? We're talking about the, the members of your lacrosse team, your, your football team, I mean, your other girls you cheer with. I mean, everybody you know that doesn't know Jesus, they're hostage to the devil. He has them. He has them right there. I mean, he's got them. And he's the commander of the unseen world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Unbelievers are prisoners in the kingdom of darkness. I'm not saying they might become that if they don't come to church. I'm not saying that, you know, devil's about to turn the lights out. No, I'm saying this is already what they are. This is where they are. They are prisoners in the kingdom of darkness. Understand, Satan has people entrapped so that they do whatever he wants. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 and 26. Do they know that they're entrapped by the devil? No. Do they know that they're out there doing whatever the devil wants them to do? No. They think they're in charge. They think they're in charge of their lives. They think they are rock stars on the red carpet. They don't think of themselves as prisoners and hostages, but this is because Satan has blinded their minds. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Satan has blinded the minds of people so that they don't see or understand the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about it like they've got a veil over their face, or you can think of it like they've got a bag over their head, and they can't see. They can't see their lostness. They can't see the consequences of their choices. They can't see where this path leads. They can't see the truth of heaven or hell. They can't understand the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, the devil has their minds blinded. This is just scripture, you all. Have you read your Bible? This is just scripture. This isn't an analogy. 
This isn't, you know, Paul using extreme language to scare people into living for Jesus. No, this is the truth. This is everybody you know that doesn't know Jesus. They're hostages to the devil. They are trapped in darkness, and they can't see that. They'll never see that. And and I'm telling you, that's why it's a battle. The devil has them as his pawns. The devil has them as his hostages, and he's not planning on giving them up. That's why souls are worth the fight, and there is a fight. You step out with the gospel, and you are taking on the devil and all of these kingdom of darkness. And if you don't understand that, it's because you've never tried to share the gospel. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. I've read it my whole life, and I've always applied it you know, to my Christian life. And I know I'm a preacher, but just like a lot of you, there are long periods in my Christian life, and my Christian life was um, nothing, you know, much. Going through the motions, you know what I mean? Like from the outside, I would always seem like a good person because for a lot of us, that's kind of the point in our minds of the Christian life, just to be good people. We don't lie, we don't cheat, we don't smoke or drink or chew, you know. I mean, we keep all those rules, and and I've always kept the rules. I'm not saying I ever didn't keep all the rules, but but showing up for church on a Sunday morning, I mean, putting your sorry behind in a pew for an hour at 11 o'clock, do you really think that's why Jesus died and sent the Holy Spirit? There's an actual battle Verse 10, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Do you understand that verse right there? Again, I would read it and apply it. You know, I memorized that verse and applied it to my sorry little life when actually I wasn't doing anything in the world that would require strength or the mighty power from God. It doesn't take mighty power from God to show up at church. I mean, I know sometimes it's hard to stay awake. But if that's the extent of your suffering for Jesus... You know what I mean? Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. To be strong in the Lord means to step out into some situations that would require his strength, you know? Be strong. You can't say you're strong sitting in the pew flexing, you know? You got to get out and engage the strength that comes from God. In his mighty power, be strong. That means you're going to step out and start doing things that would require supernatural power. In other words, if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up, you're going to be finished, You're going to look like a fool. It's going to fail. But most of us don't live that way. We don't live in any way a supernatural life that would require supernatural power. Do y'all know what I'm saying? Am I being too harsh? Because I'm saying this about myself. I've read this passage, and, you know, as a kid, man, we'd have coloring pages. We'd color this whole armor of God, you know. And I was taking on the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness for what? Because I wasn't engaging any fight. Most of us have never even engaged the fight. But Paul assumes that you would because it's the ordinary Christian life. And this entire passage is about the gospel. And that's what I learned. It's not about putting on the whole armor of God so you can sit in Sunday school. No, you put on the armor of God because you're about to step out into a war. Understand? 
So be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, verse 13, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you'll still be standing firm. I love it. So verse 14, Paul begins to go through a series of pieces of armor. He's, you can imagine that in his, in his head he sees a Roman soldier uh, all you know, dressed in his armament ready for battle. And Paul just sort of goes head to toe and, and talks about the armor of God. The only thing I would point out for these first few is that they are each uh, basic elements of the gospel. For Paul, the gospel is everything. We're just talking about the gospel here. We're talking about our lives of sharing the gospel, and that in itself is warfare. Understand. So, 14, stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor, the breastplate of righteousness. Truth, righteousness, these are aspects of the gospel. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. The gospel of peace. Let your feet be shod, the King James says, with the gospel of peace. I always kind of love that part because uh, I think one of the weirdest verses in the Bible is that verse that says how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the ones who bring good news. I just think that's weird because there is nothing beautiful about feet. I mean, we could illustrate this by just going down your pew and letting everybody take off a shoe, but I don't, think, I don't think we need to. And I think that's not exactly what the Scripture's saying. The idea is it's the feet that move the messenger in the direction of those who need to hear the good news. It's the feet that move you in the direction of those who need to hear the good news. So if you're in the position of someone who is lost and needs the good news of how to be found, and here comes somebody with feet moving them in your direction, those feet are beautiful. You know what I mean? It's the message that matters. It's the message that's beautiful. It's the lostness of the person who's about to hear the good news of how to be found. And that's what makes the feet beautiful. And so Paul says, let your feet be shod. The shoes are the gospel of peace. In addition to all of these, verse 16, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery, uh, fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet. You see that? All of those are aspects of the gospel itself. Salvation, faith, righteousness, truth. Do you see that? you understand that? And all of those, you would say, are, are defensive Armament. In, in other words, it's to protect you from what the devil's going to throw your way. The helmet, the breastplate, the shield. All that makes sense? I want to go forward then. Let's talk about uh, the, the offensive weapons, what you're having in your hand to go to battle with. It's in verse 17. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is, say it, the Word of God. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is your weapon. I have heard this verse all of my life, and always, always, I've just simply thought that we're talking about the Bible, and I'm not saying that we're not. The Bible is God's word, and the word is, in many ways, your sword. But what Paul's saying here is, is more than that. The Bible's your sword. I mean, I mean sure, I, that's what I learned. And, and growing up in a Baptist church, um, we used to have sword drills in Sunday school. So listen to Papaw now, y'all. Anybody remember that? You live long enough to do sword drills? 
Yeah. Uh, so we called the Bible our sword. We had our swords. We brought them to church with us. And in Sunday school, we do sword drills, which basically was a way of training children to learn the Bible and to learn how to uh, find things in the Bible and know Bible verses. It was fantastic. We should do something like it even now. Uh, but man, I mean, as kids, I loved it. So we would line up with our Bibles and they'd say, attention. It was all military, y'all. Attention. And they'd say, draw swords. And we go, you know, like draw your sword. We got our hand ready because we're, we're about to go after it, y'all. And then the teacher would say, find John 3, 16. <laughs> and then she'd say, charge. You know, and you couldn't, do, you couldn't move until she said charge. You know what I mean? So it's like find Psalm 100, verse 2. Charge, and we're just you know burning through it, you know, sword drills, and I learned that that the Bible, the Word of God, is the sword of the Spirit, and and that is true, that is true. But understand what Paul is saying here. Uh, Paul's writing in the Greek language. None of us speak Greek, but 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 understand, he had two words available to him in this passage, in this verse. Uh, two words that would be translated word. One would be logos, which you probably, perhaps you're familiar with that Greek word, logos. The other one is rhema. And those words are similar, but also very different. You probably would think that Paul would have chosen logos here, which would be more likely describing like the written word, the content of the written word of God. But, but no, Paul chooses the word rhema, which isn't written word, it's spoken word. Or two different words. The Greek word, one is for spoken word, one is for written word, and the word Paul chooses is spoken word. Now, that's different. That's different. I'm not saying it's not the word of God. It is your sword. But I'm saying Paul here wants you to understand something else about how we go to war. Now, I, I, I would say it this way. Your weapon is the word that comes from God, but it's spoken from your own mouth under the power of the Holy Spirit. Spoken. You go into battle speaking, and, and that spoken word is the gospel. I think that's what Paul wants you to know. It's the gospel, the word of God, the gospel on your mouth. That is the sword. See, the problem when you think your Bible is your sword is that lots of us, we, we don't even read the Bible. I mean, let's be honest. You have a Bible, but you don't read it. Some of you, if right now I held a gun to your head and you had to go find your Bible, you wouldn't be able to find your Bible. You don't know where it is. You don't even carry it to church. Like church is the one place where you know somebody's going to say, turn in your Bibles, and you don't even bring it to church. They go, Pastor Tim, I got my Bible on my phone. Well, where's your phone? You didn't open your phone either. You have no interest in God's Word, no hunger to hear it. And, and if you don't read it in church, I have a really hard time believing that you're going to read it at home. You don't read it here. I, I mean, so who are you kidding? I mean, you think the Bible is your sword, but it, it's not your sword if it's sitting under a stack of other books on your nightstand. It's not your sword if it's just sitting gathering dust on the coffee table. Who are you kidding? Now, Paul has this expectation that the Word of God is, is handy for you like a sword, but it's not just something that's laying somewhere neglected. No, this is a word that has become so much a part of you that you can speak it. You can speak it under the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about something that's just true for preachers. I'm talking about the ordinary Christian life. 
You're supposed to have the gospel on your mouth, on your lips, so that you can speak it when you're in the vicinity of lost people, the hostages of the kingdom of darkness. This is a war. You got nothing. Your weapon is the word that comes from God, spoken from your own mouth under the power of the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't even stop there. Understand, the Spirit empowers your praying just as surely as he empowers your witnessing. Verses 17 and 18, they go together. Don't separate them. They go together. Because we're talking about what the Spirit gives you, what the Spirit empowers so Paul says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit. So the Spirit gives you two things. He empowers two things. You're witnessing, but also you're praying. Prayer is warfare. Prayer is warfare. Paul uses this phrase, pray in the Spirit, in verse 18. And I know that some people want to argue about what that means, and I'm not here to argue um, I, I do notice, though, a pattern in Scripture that it seems to me when, that Paul will make a distinction between the, the way I pray in public with others and the way I pray in private with just me and the Holy Spirit. That's different. There's a difference there. I, I do a lot of praying in public, as you all have noticed. Um, I pray in front of you all a lot. Um, I'm not perfect at it, you all, um, and I'm sorry. At the end of a lot of sermons, it's not funny, but it's funny because I'm dumb. Um, like, I'll be praying to wrap up, you know, the service, and I realize, oh, my goodness, I forgot point three of the sermon. And so then I'm thinking, well, they really need to hear that, but I'm praying. So I'll just start telling God point three of the sermon, you know. <laughs> like, and God, help us all to remember what the Word says in Genesis chapter 9, you know. <laughs> you know, um, in those moments, I, f I forget who I'm talking to. I start talking to you again. But, but ordinarily, uh, in faithful moments, even when you're listening, I'm praying to God. I'm talking to God. I know you're listening, so that affects the way I pray. I typically, when I'm praying for all of us, I want to pray a prayer that you could say amen to, that, that you would understand it, and, and you would say, yeah, you know, I wasn't the one praying out loud, but that's what I would have prayed right there. That, those are the words of my, you know what I mean? You want to sort of capture... The, the, the one accord, you know, prayer that would come from the congregation if we all had one voice and could pray. So in public, I pray a certain way it's, 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 it, because that's what you do. But, but when I'm talking to the Lord, just me, which is most of the time when I'm praying, you're not around. And it's a different kind of praying. And Paul makes that distinction. And that personal private prayer is what he calls prayer in the spirit. It may mean other things as well, but it, it certainly means that. It, it's that private prayer in the Spirit, with the Spirit, to the Spirit. I don't know how to help you if you don't have a, a life of prayer like I'm describing. I, you are less than a baby in the spiritual life. I don't know that you've even started. A, a relationship with God is sustained by prayer. And if you don't pray, then there's no relationship there. Be, be serious. In a, praying in the Spirit, you know, praying alone, it's, it's, it's just intimate. My, my wife usually sits right there at the 8 o'clock service. So my wife is Casey. She's, if y'all don't know her, she's so amazing. I love her so much. Um, and sometimes at the 8 o'clock service, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to her because she's right there. Um, but, I, you know, 
I know y'all are listening, and it's also being streamed on Facebook Live. I mean, there's not a lot of things I'm going to say. It's not the way I talk to her when we're home in bed. I mean, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really didn't anticipate a name in on that one, but okay, yeah. Um, I'm just saying that my wife and I have a very private, intimate, secret relationship that you all have no part in. And that's what that's where our love dwells. And when it comes to your life in the spirit and your life with Jesus, if you don't have that, you know, an, an intimate prayer life you know, that, that isn't about other people, it's not praying for show, it's not praying because the preacher said, everybody bow your heads, it's, it's, just, it's just you, you know, communing with the shepherd of your soul, the, the Savior, the forgiver of your sins. There's an intimacy there. And this is what Paul is pointing toward. Understand, the way you pray with others in public may be distinguished from the way you pray privately in the Spirit. This is what I want you to know. The deeper the Spirit takes you in prayer, the more powerfully you engage the fight against the enemy. Prayer is warfare. This is what Paul is saying. The Spirit empowers our preaching, our proclamation, our witnessing, but he also empowers our prayer, and prayer is warfare. And the deeper you allow the Spirit to take you in prayer, and I don't know what that's going to be like. You're saying, Pastor Tim, how does the Holy Spirit take me deeper? Well, he just does. The same way in my relationship with my wife, it's, it's, it's 35 years of, of loving each other and walking through stuff together and learning to trust each other. And, and, and all of that just continues to deepen a relationship, you know? And I'm saying the same things happen in the spirit, and, and I can't coach you in that. I can't give you a secret language or secret words that you could pray and, and take you there. No, you, you seek the spirit, you love Jesus, and you just begin to open your heart and you pray, and the Holy Spirit will take you deeper and deeper and deeper. Paul says there's a point where the spirit just takes over and begins to pray through you in you know, words that you can't even utter. The deeper the Spirit takes you in prayer, the more powerfully you engage the fight against the enemy. Understand, the power is in the praying, and if you're prayerless, you'll be powerless. Make, make sense? So I think this is how we become the Mission One Church. Uh, and I know this is just a, a way I used to talk about it. Mission One is our vision. It's, 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 it's a picture of what Christ wants us to be. But there's nothing about this that wouldn't apply to every church. Nothing about this that doesn't apply to every single Christian life. There's nothing in the Mission One statement that isn't straight out of the New Testament. So this is how we become the church Christ is calling us to be. We clothe ourselves with the gospel armor Christ provides. Then we set people free by proclamation and praying in the spirit. Don't be afraid of the word proclamation. To proclaim just means to say it out loud. To say it loud, to say it unashamed. To be able to preach the name of Jesus, to share the name of Jesus. And you've got to be able to do that. It's not in you. That power isn't in you. But the power comes from the Holy Spirit. You step out with the gospel on your mouth and the Spirit will give you the power to proclaim it. And he'll give you the power to pray in such a way where when you go to your knees, the devil knows the battle's on. Set people free by proclamation and praying in the Spirit, y'all. Until we get here, 
we're never going to be the church Christ wants us to be. And you can't get there without me, and I can't get there without you. We are the church together. But now, we could make a deal. I don't know what y'all know about the military. I know nothing. Um, but I know that there's a thing called AWOL, right? AWOL means absent without leave. In other words, you disappeared and nobody said you could go. What if we just went AWOL? In other words, we're going to keep having church because we like church. We're Sunday morning people. We like church. We could keep, here's the deal. We could keep having church. We just don't have to, you know, invite people or try to serve the gospel because a lot of us aren't doing that anyway. Why don't we just, if we just called all that part off, I mean, but this church has been here 150 years. If they don't know where the door is by now, I don't know how many times I can stand on their door and tell them. You know what I mean? I mean, they know where the door is. If they want Jesus, they could come find him here. But we could just, we could do this for us. Sundays, where we just sing. We, we could put on the best singing show that we could possibly put together. And we could keep this building, because this is an awesome building. We'll, we'll paint these walls every 15 years. We'll change this carpet eventually. Um, 30 years, whatever. You know, we'll do that kind of, because that stuff, all that stuff takes, takes money, you know. And we could do all that. What if we just went AWOL from the mission, but we just went ahead and lived these happy religious lives that we actually enjoy anyway? You know what I'm offering? It's just a deal where we just keep it going, the church part. And I'll keep preaching, y'all keep showing up, keep putting money in the plate, we'll keep the lights on. You know, and then we grow old together. Our kids grow up. I'll do their weddings. I'll do their funerals. I'll baptize them. You know, I'll do your funeral one day. I'll make it nice and pretty. You'll be so proud of it if you could know. I'll preach your funeral one day. Somebody will preach mine and then we'll all get to heaven, you know, because we just want to go to heaven anyway. We'll all get to heaven. And according to the song, we'll sing and shout the victory. We'll all just go to heaven and sing and shout the victory. What victory? If that's all we did with everything Christ gave us, what victory? We win nothing. A man had a dream that he went to heaven. And he stood before Jesus, and he saw Jesus there with his scars. That's biblical. That technically the only thing in heaven created by people on earth, scars of Jesus. His wounds yet visible above, according to the scripture. We'll see his wounds in heaven. Jesus was there with his scars, and the man stood before the Lord, and Jesus looked at the man and said, my son, where are your scars? The man said, Lord, I, I have none, no scars. And Jesus said, son, was there nothing worth fighting for? 
to tell others about Jesus is to step into a war. And souls are worth the fight.